Welcome to a very special episode of our podcast. As most of you know by now, our MBC Life is part of the Metastatic Breast Cancer Program at Share Cancer Support. Share is committed to providing support to those living with MBC and offers many services, including the TalkMats helpline, virtual support groups, and educational and wellness programs. A few months ago in April, a prominent clinical psychologist, Dr. Ann Kane, joined SHARE's program project manager, Deb Hackenberry, in a discussion about the implications of facing mortality while also living, as Dr. Kane puts it, fully, richly, and deeply as possible. I'm Victoria Goldberg, and I'm very glad to share with you a conversation on this very real and yet seldomly discussed issue. Here is Deb Hackenberry and Dr. Kane. Hello. I want to welcome you to the, the webinar on facing mortality. I'm Deb Hackenberry. I am the program project manager at SHARE. Now I'd like to tell you a little bit about Dr. Kane. Dr. Kane is a licensed psychologist with 45 years of experience. She received her PhD from St. John's University and has a certificate in psychoanalysis and psychotherapy from NYU's postdoctoral program. Dr. Kane studied with Dr. Elizabeth Kupler-Kahn in the 1970s. In the last 20 years, her training is specialized in mind-body medicine and trauma. Her focus is loss of all kinds, and, and Dr. Kane works with people who are suffering traumatic grief and those who are dying or struggling with serious illness. The goal is to help them live as fully, richly, and deeply as possible. And now I'd like to introduce Dr. Kane. Hello, everybody. First of all, I'd like to thank you for being here and also for inviting me to do this webinar. Nothing is dearer to my heart than talking about death and dying because we are really talking about life and living. I am a clinical psychologist, as Deb said, with 45 years experience working with the sick, the dying, and the grieving. I studied with Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in the 70s and have had extensive training in mind-body medicine. Today, we're going to talk about facing our mortality. Our lives have an end point. Our physical lives are on loan and life as we know it at some point will end. What we are really talking about today is the mystery of our human existence. We are born and grow and learn and invest in life, all the while knowing that someday we will have to let go. We will lose everything and everyone. The terror of death lives permanently in all of us, either consciously or unconsciously. When my son was a year and a half, he cut his finger and saw blood coming out. He ran to me terror stricken, crying, 
mommy, 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 I'm coming out of myself. That is the fear of death. That same child at age eight came down to breakfast one morning crying and said, mom, someday we're all going to die. Yes, someday we are all going to die. Some of us sooner, some of us later. As Ernest Becker so thoughtfully laid out in his 1973 Pulitzer Prize winning work, The Denial of Death, a book, by the way, written when he was dying. The great majority of us live most of our lives by denying the reality that they will someday end. There are two human experiences that pierce that veil of denial. One is experiencing the grief of losing someone, and the other is becoming ill. Both experiences remind us that we are temporary. Today, we will talk about illness in particular, how it can bring our vulnerability and our mortality into clear focus. When someone gets the diagnosis of cancer, the world is turned upside down. Receiving this diagnosis has both in-depth and far-reaching consequences. The ancient Greek physician Hippocrates is credited with originally naming the disease cancer, which in Greek means the crab. The diagnosis of cancer enters into one's life like crab legs. It affects a person physically, spiritually, emotionally, socially. Even if after treatment, one is declared to be cancer-free, one is never the same. My position today is that the diagnosis of cancer presents a unique moment and a unique possibility in one's life. Viktor Frankl, who was a Holocaust survivor, reminded us that we have no control over what life gives us. The only control we have is in our response, in what we choose to do with what life gives us. While I would never insult you by denying the suffering that a diagnosis of cancer brings, we can find many hidden gifts in this experience, depending upon how we choose to respond. Over the years, I have seen many people change their lives dramatically. When someone comes to me with a new diagnosis of cancer, we try to strike a balance between 
hoping for the best, but preparing for the worst. Having the threat of death hanging over your head leads directly to questions about spirit and about meaning in life. This in turn creates a potent opportunity for a person to explore deep existential issues, such as meaning in life, or what one's life has or has not been, and seeing how one might live more deeply and more fully as a result of this experience. The psychologist Larry Lachan was a pioneer in the work of using cancer as an opportunity to grow. His 1989 book, Cancer as a Turning Point, was very inspiring to me. I have learned to encourage people I work with to explore their creativity and to express their feelings in art, music, writing. I also encourage people to explore their religious traditions, if any, and or their spirituality and what they might feel if they begin to experience themselves as part of something much larger than themselves. I encourage people to become seekers, to explore, to see what they believe, to see what their values are. In my own quest to grapple with life and its meaning and to try to explore the role of suffering in life, I have been very much helped by studying Buddhist philosophy. David Rico's book, The Five Things We Cannot Change, written in 2005, is a very reader-friendly blend of Buddhist philosophy and Western psychology. Most people find it extremely helpful. I find the five noble truths of Buddhism to be very grounding and very realistic. They are one, suffering is a part of life. It's not a punishment. It's not a personal narcissistic injury. It's just a part of life. Everyone suffers. The second noble truth is that everything, everything changes and ends. Think about the natural world, the tides, the seasons, the phases of the moon, the changes in our gardens, the changes in the very cells of our body that are always constantly in a state of movement and flux. Truly, everything alive is constantly changing 
and everything ends. The third noble truth of Buddhism is that life isn't fair. And no one knows that better than someone who's had a diagnosis of cancer. It is not fair. When I was a little girl, I pretty much was taught that if I was a good girl and played by the rules, everything would be okay and nothing bad would happen. But that's not how life works. Life isn't fair. The fourth noble plan of Buddhism, noble truth, is that things don't always go according to plan. I can't begin to tell you how many lives had been thoughtfully planned out a certain way that were completely thrown apart or interrupted by a diagnosis of cancer or worse by a death. Things do not always go according to plan. And the fifth noble truth of Buddhism is that people are not loving and loyal all the time. Many people who have been struggling with an illness are so disappointed by the response of other people. But remember, we're not always loving and loyal either. Before we can use the experience of cancer to grow, we must first accept it. I think it is our job in life to struggle to say yes to life, to say yes to everything that life brings us, even the hard parts, especially the hard parts. Now I can tell you over the 45 years that I've been doing this work, depending on the type and extent of the cancer, I have seen survival rates greatly improve over the years. Many people I see have learned to live with the disease for many years, gaining a sense of acceptance that the illness is a continuing part of their lives. It's just now part of their lives. The writer George Eliot said, it is never too late to be what you might have been. I became a psychologist in many ways because I believed that people were capable of change. And I have watched people change even on their deathbed. We are all capable of changing if we choose to. These are some of the questions I encourage the people I see to ask themselves. Who am I? Where am I right now? And I don't mean location. Where do I want to be? What do I want to get out of life, however long I have left for myself? 
What am I putting off that would improve my life and help me to be the person that I want to be? I ask people to identify some interests, activities, hobbies that you might like to explore. And this is the most important one. What are the state of my relationships? First of all, my relationship to myself, and secondly, my relationship with all the others in my life. I have come to understand that the most important things we can say to the people we love in our lives are four things. One, thank you. Thank you for everything you have been to me. Thank you for everything you have given me. Thank you for helping me grow. The next one is forgive me. Forgive me for any time I might have hurt you, for any way I was mean, cruel, thoughtless. We all need forgiveness. Forgive me. The next one is I forgive you. I truly let go any resentment I might have held for anything you did to hurt me. I forgive you. I give you the same thing I ask from you. And the last one is I love you. You know, I see other people, not only people who are dying or sick or grieving. And it's amazing how many people have said to me, my parents never said I love you to me. Make sure you say I love you all the time. I believe that the most important thing we can do while we are here on this planet is to love. And the ironic thing is that no matter how sick you are, no matter how compromised you are, till your very last breath, that is something you will always be capable of doing, of loving. And that is the most important thing a human being can do. Mother Teresa said, most of us are not called to do great things, but we are all called to do little things with great love. And if you wake up every morning and make it your business to love as much as possible that day, you will be living in the highest way a human being can live. I ask people I'm working with, are you really experiencing your life? Are you really experiencing the world we live in? Are you using your senses? Are you really hearing music 
Are you really seeing the color of the daffodils outside? Are you really smelling the roses, not just the metaphor? Living as deeply, fully, richly, remembering to smell the air, remembering to see a sunset, remembering to notice a color is a really crucial thing to live fully, deeply, mindfully. Developing a habit like mindfulness where you sit quietly and find that place of peace inside yourself, whether it be through guided imagery or a, a certain kind of breathing or yoga, but finding that place that we all have inside is a very important, crucial way of experiencing being human. Too many of us forget to connect with ourselves. Too many of us live our lives in busyness, in constantly being busy and never really feeling how we are alive. So I always encourage people developing a kind of meditation practice for just a few minutes a day that really help you get in touch with who you are and what it's like to be human. Living in the moment, living in the present, trying to constantly bring yourself back to the moment. If we live in the future, we become anxious, you know, what if, what if, what if? Living in the past can certainly make us depressed or regretful. And by the way, there is no such thing as a human life without regret. We are all works in progress. We all make mistakes. Humans are not perfect. And there is no such thing as perfection in human life. We all have regrets. But in this present moment, I am whole. In this present moment, I am okay. In this present moment, I am alive. If we can do that, then we will be living as deeply as possible, as deeply as we possibly can. For those of you who have not read it, I would so heartily recommend a book by a physician named Atul Gawande. It's called Being Mortal. He was a physician who was diagnosed with cancer at a very young age and wrote a beautiful book about how he dealt with it, how he processed it as he was dying. It was a tremendously wonderful book, and I think you would get so much out of it. 
two years ago, I read a wonderful book by Ram Dass. And those of you who grew up in the 60s or were alive in the 60s might remember Timothy Leary. He was a psychology professor at Harvard until he kind of went off the deep end with LSD experiments. Well, Richard Alpert was a psychology professor with him at Harvard. And when Timothy Leary went off into LSD, Richard Alpert went off to India like the Beatles did. He studied with a guru, became a deeply spiritual person, and changed his name to Ram Das. He wrote many books, including Be Here Now, which was wildly popular in the 70s. <clears throat> and when he was in his 60s, he had a very severe stroke that very much incapacitated him for the rest of his life. He lived 20 more years in a very compromised state. And two years ago, he was rapidly dying. And he dictated this book to a colleague, and it was a wonderful book. He called it Walking Each Other Home. And he said, we are all just walking each other home. He also said something that you may or may not believe, but he said, no one dies one minute before they're meant to, and no one lives one minute longer than they're meant to. That idea was very, very comforting to me as well. I personally believe that what animates us as humans is energy. Our consciousness, I believe, is energy. Quantum physicists tell us that energy cannot be destroyed. Matter part of us gets destroyed. We leave this part. But I believe with all my heart that the consciousness, that which makes us, us, survives death. Indeed, I went to a conference two years ago called Does Consciousness Survive Death? It was very interesting. I believe that it does. But there is no proof. Being comfortable living with that sacred mystery of not knowing is what we're stuck with. And I think that is a profound way to live in celebrating the mystery of being human and doing the best we can day by day to be the very best human we can. A couple of years ago, I was preparing for a talk I was giving, and I found a comic strip that so beautifully described what I want to say. So I want to read it to you. It's from the comic strip Pearls Before Swine, which is really incredibly philosophical comic strip. It's a little pig standing on a tree stump and talking. And he says, 
no one knows what we're doing here. Some have faith that they do, but no one knows. So we are scared, we are alone, and we end, and we don't know where we go. So we cling to money for comfort, and we chase awards for immortality, and we hide in the routine of our days. But then the night, always the night, which, when it has you alone, whispers that maybe none of this has any significance. So love everyone you're with, because comforting each other on this journey we never asked for nor understand is the best that we can do. With that, I am going to end my prepared part and enter into a dialogue with you. So I would like to hear your questions and do my very best to answer them. Thank you very much. Now we will start the Q&A. Uh, you can submit questions in the Q&A section at the bottom of your screen. We'll try to get through all of the submitted questions, but we may not be able to due to time constraints. So the first question is, how to overcome and deal with feeling envious of others' successes and their future long-term plans based on that success, especially when you feel as you don't have that future? Well, it's a very normal feeling to be envious of people you think have a future when you're not sure you do. But I can tell you, no one knows how long they will live. No one. I have seen families where in a couple, one person has cancer and the other person is healthy that the healthy person dies before the cancerous person many times. We just do not know. The best you can do with that feeling is accept it, but don't act on it. There is nothing we can be more jealous of than imagine time when we're not sure we have any. However, I'm going to give you a caveat. I have had a patient who had ovarian cancer in her 20s. She was extraordinarily lucky. She went through maybe 10 surgeries and was cancer free and told that the cancer would most likely come back. So here she was about 30, having fought hard for her life. And I was trying to encourage her to live as fully and joyfully as possible. And she was afraid to. She was afraid to start anything new. She was afraid to have a, a fuller, richer life. She lived 25 more years 
in that half alive state before the cancer came back. And no matter what I tried, I could not budge her to try to encourage her to live more fully. My point is that we never know how long we're gonna have. I've seen people at death's door live so many more years. And I've seen people who were told that cancer was gone, be dead the next year. We just don't know. Another question that we've received is, I'm stage four metastatic cancer thriver, diagnosed four years ago and waiting to die, not knowing when. Recently told by my doc that I'm in remission, no cancer in my liver or lungs. What the heck, I'm afraid to believe this. I should be celebrating even though I know I truly am not cancer free. It's just swimming along, waiting to find a spot to land and grow. How can I wrap my head around this? Well, that's a lot related to what we were just talking about. Our job as humans is to live one day at a time as fully and joyfully as we possibly can to try not to go too far beyond that. You could have 10 years, you could have 10 months. You don't know, your doctor doesn't know, and I don't know. It's not so much about how long you live, it's more about how you live and what you allow yourself to experience in this gift that we call life. Another person has indicated that the hardest time I have with mortality is on momentous occasions or birthdays or holidays, milestones. Do you have tips how to not break down at the end of that day or event, usually in private? Well, in the Middle Ages, there was a, a mystic named Meister Eckhart. He said, if you only say one prayer in your life, let it be thank you. What I try to do for myself and what I try to do with the people I work with is to be grateful for what we've been given. At the end of every birthday, I say thank you for one more year of life that I've had and thank you for this day. Perhaps you can focus on the fact that you're having a birthday and the gift that that is. Can you address some coping skills for a metastatic breast cancer diagnosis? I've talked about that a little bit, but I would do a life review. I would see what I want to work on in myself, how I might live more fully and more joyfully. And again, I do not want to insult anybody by denying the suffering that the diagnosis and treatment brings. I know it's not a picnic, and I know you don't get up in the morning feeling great, and I know what treatment does to you. Believe me. But 
there is always a way that we can be more. Even if it's just to be more loving. I think mindfulness helps. I think joining a group of other women who are coping and the energy of all the people who are coping is really uh, contagious and it helps. I think having uh, a therapist to deal with some of the feelings that you have or work through some of the baggage that you're carrying can be very helpful. Things like yoga is very helpful. I once went on a yoga retreat where one of our uh, experiences was to imagine our own death. And I spent the greater part of half a day imagining my own death and what that would be like and what that would feel like and what I would want it to be like. It was quite an extraordinary experience. And when you face it, when you think about it as another experience you're going to have, it takes some of the fear away. How do you navigate relationships with people when you tell them you have uh, a metastatic breast cancer? Not everybody is going to respond the way you'd like. Not everybody is going to be thoughtful or kind. Sometimes you're going to be disappointed by the people who you thought would be there for you. And sometimes you're going to be surprised by the people who are. Fortunately, this is not the way it used to be a long time ago where people wouldn't even say the word cancer. It was the big C, if any of you are old enough like me to remember that. Now having cancer is an out in the open thing and many, many people uh, acknowledge how strong women are who are coping with it, how incredibly amazing they are who are coping with it. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was such an amazing example of a woman who had at least three different kinds of cancer and didn't let it define her, didn't let it stop her. How do you begin to prepare for end of life? What are the practical things one needs to do? Get your legal stuff in order. Make sure you know what you want to do and who you want to leave things to. It doesn't do you any good to put that off thinking that if you do it, it's a sign that you think you're going to die. It doesn't mean you're going to die to get your affairs in order. I encourage people to write letters to the people they love to be given out after they're dead. I encourage people to make recordings. I encourage people to make videos because I can tell you from the grievers that I work with, those things become inordinately precious. But don't wait till you're dead to tell people how you feel about them. Tell them every day how you care about them. 
having a bucket list and actually doing some of the things on your bucket list are really a, a good way to live to live as fully as you possibly can till you can't anymore is a good way to prepare for death. Another person writes, my family does not want to talk about the reality of my diagnosis. How should I handle this? That's really sad because it leaves you very much alone, doesn't it? There is nothing worse than a family who doesn't want to talk about what's happening and what the feelings are. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, she's the one who started this work on death and dying in the United States. And she would encourage people to talk to their families and families to talk to the person who's been diagnosed openly about what's going on. Otherwise, to be alone in that is very, 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 very lonely. I would suggest that you tell your family that it would help you if they could deal with this. But if they are absolutely adamant, then make sure you are surrounded by other cancer patients or by friends that you can talk to you about your feelings or be in a support group or talk to a therapist because this is not something you should deal with on your own. And I feel sad for your family because it's going to be much harder for them later on. They're gonna have some regrets, I believe. Talking about the possibility of dying doesn't mean you're going to die imminently. We are all going to die. And talking about what you would like, how you would like to die, whether you want to die at home, whether you want to go to hospice, whether you want a home hospice, all of that is really important to set up ahead of time. And I encourage people to do that. No one should die alone. No one should die in pain, not in this day and age. Another person has written in, how does drug-assisted euthanasia or voluntary cessation of fluids nutrition fit into this conversation of how one might choose to stop treatment and not want to have a prolonged suffering? That is a very personal choice. It, it is the right of each of us to make that choice. I went to a seminar where a hospice nurse talked about helping patients who have made the choice to end treatment, who really feel like their time is up, stop taking nourishment and water. And unlike popular belief, it is not an extraordinarily painful way to die. She shared with us that the person just eventually goes into a coma and can have a very peaceful death. I would not share my own personal feelings about that, working with someone at all, but it is right that each of us has to stop treatment if we feel that 
there's no point in continuing if it's extremely painful, if it's preventing us from living as fully at the end as we want to. And that is a right that each of us has. Another question. I have family who downplay the seriousness of my illness. How much should I make sure they understand or just let it go? They may think they're doing you a favor by downplaying the seriousness of it. I would share my feelings with them. There's a real possibility that I could die. It's very hard for a person in treatment to be in denial about their mortality. It is easier for your family members to be in denial about your mortality. I had a patient recently whose mother died and she said, my mother was such a strong woman. She got through so much crap in her life. I was sure she was going to get through this too. I hear that a lot. We often don't want to see the people we love as vulnerable, but we're all vulnerable. You share your feelings with them, but the bottom line is we can't change other people. We can only accept who they are and how they are. That's the bottom line. Another wrote, how to discuss the issue of mortality in a caring and comforting manner. I'm not sure with whom they're talking about. If a family member, you simply can talk about the fact that there is a possibility that I could die here. Or there is a likelihood that I could die here. And like Anything else, the reality of this or the reality of that, the longer we talk about it, the more we deal with it, the more comfortable people eventually get with it. It can be a process. It's not going to be an event, but it's a process. In my family, unfortunately, my, my poor children, when they were little, were very used to a mother who was always talking about death. When my daughter was in kindergarten, her teacher asked to make a Mother's Day card of a theme that your mother would enjoy. So my daughter made a Mother's Day card with a skull and crossbones on it. And I got a phone call from the teacher asking if everything was all right in our house. My kids are middle-aged people now, but my family is used to talking about death all the time as a fact of life. When others want help with difficult feelings of fear of suffering and dying, sometimes I'm not sure what to say. Well, there's all kinds of suffering. When you are diagnosed with cancer, there is the suffering of no longer having good health and the suffering of having to live in patient land and the suffering of having to go through treatments that are um, 
painful and exhausting and change our bodies and change how we look. There's the suffering of your life being changed, of your energy being taken away, of your experiences being diminished, of your world becoming smaller, of the loneliness of being a, a patient and having your regular life taken away. That's very real suffering. The fear that most people have about death is threefold, really. One is physical pain. People fear that dying is going to be physically painful. There is no reason in today's world with the kind of drugs that we have, with the kind of hospice care that we have, that people should be in pain. Morphine is a wonderful drug. And there is no reason for people to be in physical pain. The other kind of pain caused by dying is the fear of being alone, of abandonment, of having to let go of everyone, of detachment from everything, of being truly alone in this process. And the other fear is unknown. I had a patient once who was raised in a very rigid Irish Catholic family. And he, like all of us, was not a perfect person and was terrified of going to hell. I mean, terrified. And he had been brought up to believe that he would burn for eternity, like literally be on fire. It was excruciating trying to work with him to help him understand that I don't think a loving creator would ever do that to anything he or she created. And to try to get that person to relax, to think that maybe what we were going to was not a punishment, but some kind of alternative existence was very difficult. So I really try to explore with people I work with way ahead of time, what are your beliefs about what's going to happen after death? Because that kind of a, a thing is extraordinarily painful. How would you explain any of this to a young child? It is very, very difficult. I started explaining it to my kids when they were really little. You begin with the process that everyone is going to die and everything dies and dying is changing your state of being. Children are not really able to process the permanence of death until ages eight, nine, or 10, usually. Very young children cannot understand um, what death is, although there are some really fascinating things written about children who seem to still have one foot in the world we, we came from before we were born who can see things that we can't see when they're very little. But there are some wonderful books that help 
children, like The Fall of Freddie the Leaf by Leo Bascalia. It's a very difficult thing when little children are having to watch a parent die and not fully be able to process it. But that will be something they will process for the rest of their lives. I'm seeing a woman right now whose five-year-old daughter died of brain cancer. And it was a one-year process. And her four-year-old did not really understand what was happening to her. And it was a very difficult process for those parents to try to prepare their daughter for what she was going through and themselves for what they were going to be going through and their other siblings for what they were going to watch. Can you talk a a little bit about the impact of COVID on top of a cancer diagnosis? Yeah, I can. Many of the people I am seeing now who have metastatic cancer and who are cherishing the time they have and trying to make the best use of it and trying to live as fully and deeply as possible, really resent not being able to live as fully as they hoped they could. They wanted to travel. They wanted to be with people. They wanted to do things, to to see plays, see movies, listen to music outside, do all kinds of life-affirming things, and they can't, and they resent it. Just last week, someone said to me, this was not how I expected I would be living what I think might be the last years of my life. I really resent that. But life is about trying to cope with what we are given, right? And we have to do that in COVID as well. Do you recommend that we should imagine our own deaths? Yes. A resounding yes. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross used the butterfly as her symbol because she loved to talk about the fact that caterpillars morph into a beautiful butterfly. And she thought that that what death was like. And I think I may have mentioned that in a yoga retreat, we had to imagine our own deaths. The more you imagine it, the less frightening it becomes. I know what music I would like to listen to as I'm dying. I think I know what room I want to die in. I very much related to Barbara Bush, who the day before she died asked to be brought out to her backyard and be with her flowers and the birds. If I could die in my garden, I would. But yes, 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 and try to imagine your own death, but in a way that would bring everything you love into play and make this experience, and this is another experience of your life, uh, the very best possible one it can be. 
I have read about people who have decided to have assisted suicide, people in Oregon or California. One man who had been a Catholic priest and left knew he was going to die. And about a month before he was supposed to die, had a big party, invited everyone, did a wake and a funeral with him there. And then the next day, he had just his family members around his bed and took the medication and died a very peaceful, satisfying, beautiful death. Thank you, Dr. Kane, for an informative program. And thanks to all of you for participating and submitting questions. Thanks very much. Bye. My pleasure. Bye-bye. This podcast is produced by me, Lisa Laudico, and our truly amazing team of Bob DeVito, Dar Finkelstein, Natalia Green, Victoria Goldberg, Ellen Landsberger, Sheila McGlone, Riley Starr, and Anne Woodward. Our executive producer is Christine Benjamin, the Senior Director of Patient Services and Education at Share Cancer Support. Our senior intern is Sarah Mann, along with interns Angelica Alberstadt, Emily Lewis, Samantha Silverstein, and Amy Tedeschi. We have benefited from expert social media consulting from Jake Amarelli and sound design and original music compositions from Jim Cremens. You can find more episodes of RNBC Life wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and rate and review us and look for a new episode every second Monday. Check out our blog, full episode notes on our website at rnbclife.org. We would love to hear from you.